Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask you to bless and anoint this time as we study. We ask you to be with us and, and lead and guide. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus 37, starting at verse 1. And Beziel El made the ark of Shittim wood, of, and, and two cubics and a half was its length of it, and a cubic and a half its breadth, and a cubic and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold within and without, and made a crown of gold to it around about, and he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in the four corners of it, two rings, even two rings on the one side and two rings upon the other side of it, and he made staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold, and he put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark to bear the ark. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, we're starting to see him put together things. Last week we were talking about them building, you know, embroidering the cloth and and we looked at that, and it's kind of interesting that pretty much, if you remember when we first started studying the tabernacle, we started from the inside and worked out. And as we're looking at them actually build it, we're seeing it all over the place. It started with the outside and the walls and everything, and it's working its way toward the center pieces. So we want to just look at this, that he's making the ark, and the ark has what in it now again? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Manna. The manna. Aaron's rod. The Aaron's rod. The we have the same three people say the same answers each time, so that's good. You, <laughs> each have, you each have your, pe- your, your, your part down pat. <laughs> and, he made, and they make this ark out of wood, and then they cover it with pure gold. What does wood represent? We've talked about this before. Uh, uh, humanity. Humanity. And gold represents? Deity. Okay. Yes, there we go. All right, so they're, they're building the ark. It's, it's two and a half cubits long, which is approximately three feet nine inches, uh, given an 18-inch cubit. And you remember we talked about we really don't know how long, how big a cubic is because there's different, different cubits uh, as, as low as 14 inches and as long as 24 inches. In the, in, in the ancient world, depending on which race you were talking about. And so it's about three feet? It's approximately three feet, nine, nine inches long, and, and about two feet, three inches wide, and two feet, three inches high. And it has a, a crown. I thought the was 18 inches. I don't know why. It, generally, we accept that it's 18 inches, but I just I let people know that even though I'm using 18 inches, it could be something other than that because the royal cubic of Egypt was 24 cubits and the royal cubic in a lot of the Middle Eastern countries was 24. Many of them had 18 inches and a few had them even you know, ridiculously small. So it's one of those figures that you know, pretty much we accept 18 because the majority of the people used 18. So what's the guess on the height? Two feet, three inches. Yes, they, they were the same. Oh, great. And they overlaid it with gold within without, and he made a crown of gold. Who remembers what the crown of gold was? It was kind of a molding, you know, a raised edge around the, the top of the top of it. And he cast four rings and two on each side and, and made poles for it. And these were going to be carried. The ark, the ark was going to be carried by the Levites. 
And if you remember, we talked about that in David's day. They were bringing the ark back, and they weren't carrying it the way they were supposed to. They put it in a cart. The cart hit a bump in the road, and it looked like the ark was going to fall out. And uh, Uzzah reached out, touched it to stabilize it so it didn't fall, and he was struck dead. So it's roundabouts inside and outside. Huh? That's what means roundabout. Gold in, in, in it, roundabout. Yeah, he put gold in it, inside and out. Inside, oh, roundabout. Yeah, it was, it was totally covered in gold. And they put the four rings in, and they made ro uh, the rods to carry it. Verse 6, And he made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubics and a half was its length thereof, and a cubic and a half its breadth thereof. And he made two cherub of, of gold beaten out of one piece, made he them on the two ends of the mercy seat. The one cherub on the end of on one side and another on the other end of that side out of the mercy seat made he the cherub cherubim on the two ends thereof and the cherubim spread out their wings on high and covered with their wings over the mercy seat and their faces one to another even to the mercy seat set a seatward toward where the faces of the cherubim. Okay, so he built cherubim which are a class of angels. Um, and Arab, the cherub, cherubim, <laughs> seem to be guard angels. When we see the word cherubim, we see that they guarded the Garden of Eden so that nobody could come in. We see them flanking the mercy seat. It seems that they flank, you know, they seem to be guard type, almost military type angels when we talk about them. Are those the one with six wings? Those are seraphim. Okay. The seraphim have six wings. They're, they're mentioned in Isaiah. Matter of fact, that's the only place that they're mentioned is in Isaiah. And they fly above God's throne praising him, singing holy, holy, holy. Uh, so they seem to be praise angels. Um, and the cherubim are mentioned in a number of places. Most of the time it's in reference to the mercy seat. Other than, other than um, Genesis... And then we see them, uh, basically it says that God meets them between the cherubim. Which indicate that there must be cherubim angels that guard the, you know, the throne room of heaven on either side of the, of the throne. Um, in the scriptures, angels are mentioned 286 times. So it seems to be pretty important to God that we know something about angels. Now, this gets us interesting because in the scriptures, when you read these verses about angels, almost every one of them talk about them being messengers, ministers, or protectors. How many times? 286 times. And that's angel or angels. And I didn't look up angelic, which could have given us some more. In the whole Bible. In the whole Bible. Um, Seraphim are only mentioned in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, and that's when, if you remember Isaiah 6, that's when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the angels cried, holy, 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 and he talks about the seraphim with their six, you know, six arms, and says, two they cover their face, two they cover their feet, and with two, oh, wings, excuse me, and with two they did fly. Uh, so he talks about seraphim. The only other thing we know about angels, we're getting a little bit of training on angelology here. Seraphim has eight six wings. Six wings. Two over their two over their face, eyes, two over their feet, and two and two they fly with. Uh, the only other thing we know about angels are we know the three named angels: Gabriel, 
who seems to be the chief messenger, and then Michael, who seems to be probably the chief cherubim because he's always in a position of battle. He's the one that when the angel tried to get to the message to Daniel, he was, he was the one that was called to defend him. We, we read about him in, in Jude where he, where he fights over the body, you know, fights with Satan over the body. And the third angel that's named is Lucifer or Satan who is fallen. And so that's about all we really know about angels. <laughs> that's all the Bible ever says about angels. Uh, now, a lot of people will give you a lot more about angels. And what they usually use to give you a lot more about angels is the book of Enoch, which is not a canonized book. It's a kind of an interesting book to read, but I would never make doctrine from the book of Enoch. Enoch tells you how to have power over the angels. It gives you names of all the fallen angels. Uh, it's not a very, it, it is it's a very strange book to read. It's kind of interesting, but I would never make it part of my doctrinal thoughts of angels. So I don't recommend it as a, as a reading tool unless you can keep your, keep your mind separate from outside sources to, about angels. Uh, any questions as we go? We're going to leave angels here in just a moment. <laughs> Keep your what? Your mind separate from me? Uh. Well, sometimes people cannot separate what they read in the Bible from commentary about the Bible. Okay. And we've got to remember the Bible is inspired God's word. Commentary is somebody's opinion about, about it. Um, the evil spirits that I chased out of the man that was in the cave, the uh, legions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were they angels or just, were they angels of some sort? Yes. The demonic world are the fallen angels. Yes. Uh, now, I've had somebody try to tell me that they were a special class of fallen angels, but I'm not going to get into all of that because I didn't buy it when he told me that. Uh, they are fallen angels, and, and which tells you there's a lot of it. Jesus told told his disciples that he could have called 12 legions of angels, which is a lot of angels, okay? And that's his side, so that means Satan has a third of the angels with him, so it would indicate that he has six legions of angels, if that was the total number. You know, if Jesus, when he said 12 legions, was all the angelic force that he has, which I don't think it was, I think he was making a point to the Romans because the Romans were proud of their 10 legions. So what he was basically saying is, hey, hey, my followers, I can call more angels than Rome has soldiers in their entire empire. And so if he could call 12 legions, that means Satan has at least six legions of angels, demons, fallen angels at his disposal. Six. Evil spirits. They all know who Jesus is. Yes. When he chases, they know him. I mm -hmm. knew who you are. Well, they knew him before he came. Yeah. So I mean, which sometimes is. Sometimes he tells them to be quiet, not to say nothing. But. Well, that's what he did most of the time. Be yeah. quiet. My time is not no. yet. Yeah. Uh, because the angels, this is what made the angels' rebellion so really wicked. We, we fail and we make sin, but we've never seen the spiritual world. The angels were right there at the throne of God and, they, and rebelled against him. 
So this is this is part of what we look at. It, this is you know, and like I say, we don't know a lot about angels. Uh, you know, angels have been popular off and on over the years. Uh, you know, about 15, 20 years ago, angels were really big. All the TV shows about angels and and people were getting into the worship of angels and and all of this stuff that goes along with that that culture and that ebbs and flows all you know for, over the centuries. I got a question. How many is in a legion? Yeah, I want to know that too. Because <laughs> I know there's the American Legion, you know, foreign legion. I'm trying to remember how much you had a a phylon, a century. I think I'd have to look this up. Don't you know? I'll look it up for you to get you the right answer. I think a legion was ten, ten centuries, which is a thousand, and it might have been a hundred centuries. It might have been. It's either a thousand or ten thousand troops. I'm thinking ten thousand is the number, because wow. because Rome had a very large army, uh, you know, at its disposal. And even 10,000 seems small to me, so if Lynn finds it before we're done, we'll, we'll let you know. But it's a very large number. It, we would equate it to, to the, one of the largest sizes for the Army, you know, uh, brigades or divisions, you know, whatever. I don't remember which, because I never was with much with the Army. Like, yes, yeah, Centurion was 100. Mm -hmm. Centurion was a commander of 100. Uh, and I can't remember if it was ten or a hundred centuries. Legion's a lot of a lot of people. Yes. Is the largest group of. of and Legion was the largest group that they they divided you know sub on their armies. Of armies yeah. And they were very proud of their ten their ten legions, and then with each legion was a matching kind of slave army. You know, not technically not a slave army, but when they would conquer a place, they would put together. Their legion and they would carry on with it. Lynn's trying to look it up. It says that um, the legion means the entire Roman army. Here, look. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Siri. How many men are in a legion? <laughs> so, so you're saying they're very proud of their slave army? No, they're ten they had, legions. They had a slave army too. It wasn't technically a slave army. It was a. They were considered the father, and then the, these people would come in underneath them to prove their service. They would produce a, a legion that was subordinate to the Roman legion, but... Oh, slave father. Uh, it leader, wasn't technically, leader, a, it like wasn't a, technically a, a slave. To, like a leader. So... 1,000 to 1,500 men. Okay. What is your answer from there, from your little... Back to that. Two, three, two, it's 1,000 to 1,500 men. Oh, no, they were much so larger than that. But I thought that was larger than that. That's a lot yeah. to feed. I'll look it up later on. I'll, I'll find the right answer. I, I know it was minimum of 1,000, but I think it was closer to 10 to 100,000 men for their legion because they were, they were proud of their large group. That's a good question. Huh? So I will get the answer for that one. So you, think maybe it's 10, you think maybe it's 10,000 I don't get the answer. So, but that's fine. If she finds a good answer, we'll we'll get it. But anyway, that's a lot. Even a thousand. There's a lot of people. Even at a thousand, it's a lot. It's a lot. But you know, we're talking. We're talking. I know a legion was considered much more than a thousand. We're talking ten ten thousand to to a hundred thousand, somewhere between those two numbers. One legion. 
was a le one legion. Wow. So each region had a legion. Pretty much. Pretty much. They had the legion. The legions were sent out, and actually they would send them out by centurions to different regions. Oh, I see. Uh, and then the army would be the legion that you were obedient to. Wow. Um, now, we talk about the mercy seat being created, and remember the other, what was the other name for the mercy seat? Does anybody remember the... The propitiation sheet seat. Oh yeah, it's more. But I think it's more. This one says about twenty-five thousand legions. <laughs> I can go on. In a legion, so. <laughs> so I will look it up. I've got some history books and stuff that I can look it up under. It also depends on the time you're looking. You know, the time frame you're looking at, because sometimes they changed it. Okay, so the other name for the mercy seat is the propitiation sheet. Seat. <laughs> Having a hard time speaking. And what does propitiation mean? I don't recall. No. But I know I had that after months ago. The act of appeasing the wrath and conciliating the favor of an offended party. Okay? So Jesus was the pro our propitiation. He all of God's wrath was put on Jesus that we deserved so that he could win God's favor toward us. Okay? Very important for us to understand that principle. Jesus took all of our punishment. There's no punishment reserved for us. Now, we will be judged for whether we obey or disobey and let him work through us, but that is a judgment of our works for rewards, not for wrath. Okay, God does not have anger toward us. Even when the people stand before God at the white throne judgment, they're not receiving wrath, they're receiving the punishment for rejecting Jesus' sacrifice. The wrath that God has for mankind is paid. It's been propitiated. Okay? God does not have wrath toward us because it has been paid. Right? It does not mean that there is not discipline for rejecting it. And it does not mean that he will that there isn't discipline for improper living for us, but his wrath no longer is out there. Do you understand the difference between those? Yeah, it's grace. Yeah, yeah it's, it's grace. It's, it's everything. It's the same way that when we discipline our children, we're not to do it in wrath. That is child abuse if we're discipline, discipline our children in wrath. Uh, but when I correct them, I can give them a spanking outside of wrath. It's going to hurt them on their backside where it says lots of padding that is good place to paddle them and does not physically damage them. It just lets them know that disobedience has pain involved. As, as consequence, there's pain involved in disobedience. Same thing that when we're in a workplace, if we disobey in work, there should be consequences. Now, there isn't always, but there's supposed to be you know, loss of pay because you went home, or ultimate, ultimate discipline in the workplace is to terminate their employment. All right, both of which causes, you know, some kind of pain. Yeah, I'm goofing off. I thought they pain. Right. Well, when they started coming down with the point system, 
Well, point systems are terrible because it teaches delayed obedience. I know, but the, boy, you couldn't, it was hard to work one out. Work, you know, clean your plate. Yeah. But they still have that, too, don't A lot of places. Yeah, we did that in our classroom. You earn so many points when you do your work. And then if you don't do your work, now these points go to treats. <laughs> they when, buy the treats. When I was the instructor in the Christian day school, uh, the person who was assisting me, they used a kind of a point, point reward system and a you know, redu reduction of points. He was real big on negative points. You know, he very rarely gave points. By the time I got done with the day, these kids had so many points because I believed in a positive reinforcement and the kids responded to me much better than they did to him. He would yell at them and they'd just kind of laugh at him, you know, and all I had to do was say, okay guys, let's be quiet and give them, you know, and I'd give points to those who were being quiet. And so they would listen to me and you know, I was able to control all 35 students with no problem, you know, without yelling and all this raising of the voice because I respected the kids and they knew they were respected. And this is important because positive is much better. That is why God's grace will change people's lives. You, you put down laws on people and they usually rebel. And I've, all, and I've shared this many times, if somebody gives me a rule, especially if they don't give me a good reason for the rule, I'm very much likely, likely to say, well, why should I be obeying this rule? You, know, you may be in charge and everything, but this is a dumb rule. But if somebody gives me a rule and gives me a good reason for the rule, I'll live by the reason more than the rule. And so, but grace is what actually wins people's hearts because God says, I love you and I want you to do good because you love me. Not because it's a rule, not because it's a law, but just because he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he builds us up with his grace. And so we want to be able to look at that growing in God's grace, showing people grace. Does that mean we let them run all over us and, and, and abuse us? No, because that is being a doormat and everything. But there is also a place where sometimes that is what God uses to win people. Jesus went to the cross without, as a lamb, you know, before his shears was dumb, he did not defend himself. He did not call for defense. He went willingly to the cross. I've been in the process of rereading the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and how many of the Christians that were martyred went willingly to, the, to, the, uh, to their death. Uh, one of them, I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but... He goes, you don't have to tie me to, the tie me to the stake. I will willingly embrace the stake from my Lord. And they light lightly tied him, and he literally stayed in the flames to be burned because he goes, I'm not going to fight this. I'm going to be. And the amazing thing, and the book brings this out, people would see the grace that people faced their death with when Jesus, you know, when they were dying as Christians, and they would turn to God in droves because here are people that were dying for something they understood was of great value. And this is why I've, I've stated, you know, when things, bad things happen to us, how do we look at them? 
Yeah. Do we look at them as, oh, this is terrible, or do we look at, God, you're, you're, you've chosen me to suffer? All through the New Testament, the apostles said, thank God I'm worthy of suffering for him. You know, do we look at suffering in that light? God, thank you that I am worthy of suffering. That was the furnace, yeah. Uh, you know, I am worthy of suffering for you. Now, the key there is that we need to be suffering for him, not because of being a, a, a jerk or an idiot, but God, I have been representing you, and, and I'm being crucified or, or killed before you. These Christian, Coptic Christians that were killed by ISIS a couple weeks ago, they it was said that they were killed while they were praying to God. And I can guarantee that made an impact on many people who have seen this because these people died as true martyrs. I'm going to pray to God. I'm, I'm going to thank God that I am being, being suffering for him. And even some of the people that killed them probably have been touched by the grace that these people died with. And so we want to be very much looking at this. God has got a purpose for everything we go through. And we need to be able to look at it and be content. Be content with what God has given us. Paul says, I have learned to be content in much and in little. And there were times when he had much. He, he, you know, he was building, making his tents while he preached. And then there was times when he was shipwrecked and, and you know, was under constant persecution and had nothing. And yet he says, I am content. Why? Because he was in the center of God's will, knowing that he was there, and letting God work through his life. And there is no better place to be than in the center of God's will. Because if you're in the center of his will, no matter how good or bad it looks, you're doing what God wants you to do. When Paul was shipwrecked and beat and all that, he was, no, he was not out of God's will. He was just being a witness for Christ. And as far as he was concerned, he's probably saying, I deserve this because I held the cloaks while Stephen was, was uh, stoned. I drug the people from their houses and took them to the courts and watched them be killed. In Paul's mind, he's probably saying, okay, God, I'm worthy of it and I deserve this, you know, and I'm going to just be, take it with great grace. And if we really think about it, no matter what comes our way, we probably deserve. You know, because, you know, and, I, and I've said this before, when people ask, why, do bad, why does bad things happen to good people? I've, I've said this before, that is the wrong question. The real question should be, why does anything good happen to all of us bad people? Because technically, we are all bad. We live under the grace of God. We have the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sins. But we all know that at the bottom and the depths of our heart, we are incredibly wicked and deserve nothing good. So when God gives us grace to give us something good, we should be thanking God. You know, Thank you, God, that you gave me all the stuff that I don't deserve to get. Instead of asking God, why does bad things happen, it's thank you, God, for anything good. You know, I got up this morning and drew a breath. Thank you, God. You know, at Thanksgiving this year, my mother had, at our place settings, 
had a mason jar with a bow on it, and at the end of the dinner, she explained what the jar was. It's called a thankful jar. And every time this year that something happens that you're thankful for, you're supposed to jot it down on a little note, put it in your jar, and next Thanksgiving, we're going to sample something. Well, that's good. And my jar would get pretty full. I was going to say, my jar would be full pretty quick. Mine's full, and that's what he says about a third of the way full, we're only the same. Look, he's like, I think every morning I listen to my mind how many good things God's given me. Uh huh. Yep. These jars are pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> it's about this big and that's normal, yeah. Plant size. But the but the whole key size. to this, the mercy seat, Jesus has paid all of God's wrath. All of it. There's nothing left out there. When God disciplines it is be just a simple discipline of for the Bema seat of Christ, here's the things you did that got, that worked through God, and here's the things you didn't do through through my spirit. Most of it, most of it in our life will probably be burnt away. For almost all of us, most of our works will probably be burnt away because we did them in the flesh and not in the spirit. Uh, and then the white throne judgment is just a real simple question. What did you do with Jesus? The unforgivable sin is simply to reject Jesus Christ. And so at the white throne judgment, that is the only question that will be asked of, the, you know, asked of everybody. And if they're in front of the white throne judgment, they have all rejected Christ. And they will be shown every opportunity they had to accept Christ. And every time they rejected, it will be played in their mind. And they will know as they're cast into hell that it is what they deserve. And that is a sad thought. That is a sad thought that they will know. And we will know because, you know, good people go, well, won't it be sad to see somebody you loved? Well, the only thing that might be sad is if you didn't witness to them. But you're also going to see that they had plenty of opportunities, whether you witnessed to them or not, to decide not to accept Christ. Right. Any comments? All right. Verse, where are we? We're on verse 10. And he made the table of shittim wood, two cubics was its length thereof, and a cubic and a, the breadth thereof, and a cubic and a half the height thereof. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made there upon it a crown round about it. And he made there unto a, a border of a hand breadth around about and made the gold, crown of gold for the border thereof around about. And he cast for it four rings of gold and put the rings upon the four corners that were in the four, four feet thereof over against the border with the rings. The places were the staves to bear the tables. And he made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold to bear the table. So we're talking about the table of incense, or showbread rather, excuse me. Um, huh? So this, this table was about three feet by one and a half feet and one and a half feet tall. So breadth is the length of it? Breadth is the, the width, 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 and then the length and the height. And it had a crown around the top, and this one had identified it as a hand breadth was about four to six inches. So that's a pretty wide, you know, crown around the edge of this. Uh, this isn't a very, this isn't a small, tiny, you know, crown around it. And it again is, is covered with gold. It's made out of wood, covered with gold, set up to be carried with the staves. And, uh, and he made vessels to, you know, the dishes, the spoons, the bowls and the covers and everything. And remember, what all, what all is on this table of showbread? Who remembers? 
Well, the seven loaves of bread. How many loaves of bread? Seven. Twelve. Twelve loaves of bread in, in two stacks. In two stacks. Seven in each. Six in each stack. Six in each stack, yeah. And what else was on this table? Incense. The incense oh, yeah, and... The, the mora, the or what do you call it? No, the not on this. Frankincense was on oh, yeah, frankincense. it. Because remember, they're going to put the oil in the frankincense on the showbread, yeah. which made it, must have tasted kind of funny. I don't, I've, I don't particularly care for the taste of frankincense myself, but and tried it once. Uh, so we've got we've got the this being made, and again, it's made out of wood and gold. Everything inside the holy place and the holy of holy place is made out of of, of gold. Everything's made out of gold, and most of it has wood underneath the gold. All right. The cherubims were, were made out of one big piece of gold, and, or probably molded, and they did not have metal uh, wood underneath them because they represented strictly the deity and the holiness of heaven. So there was going to be no, no deity and angelic, or humanity in the angelic uh, presentation. All right, any comments on the... We're not going heavily into this because we've covered all this, all these pieces of equipment for, for weeks. <laughs> okay, verse 17, And he made the candlestick of pure gold of beaten work, made he the candlesticks, his shaft, and his branch, and his bowls, and his knobs, and his flowers were all the same. The six branches going out the sides thereof, three branches of the candlestick out of one side thereof, and three branches of the candlestick out the other side thereof, three bowls made after the fashion of almonds in, in one branch and a knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almonds on another branch, a knob and a flower. So throughout the six branches going out of the candlestick, and the candlesticks were four, four bowls with made like almonds and his knobs and his flowers, and the knob under the two branches of the same, and a knob of the two branches of the same, and a knob under the two branches of the same, according to the six branches going out of it, their knobs and their branches were the same. All of this was one beaten work of pure gold. And he made his seven lamps and his snuffers and the snuff dishes and the, of pure gold, of a talent of pure gold made he it and all the vessels thereof. Okay, this is quite a description. Of, you know, basically, if you've seen a menorah, it's seven, you know, six, six, um, well, three on each side going up in a middle, middle branch, and usually candles are put in the ones you see, but in this one, it's going to have a bowl at the top that had oil that was fed into it, and it was designed to burn, and it has a little knob, you know, little, you know, round knobs as you go down the candlestick. That's the menorah? The menorah. This is the temple menorah. It was made out of one talent of gold. Now, a talent of gold is approximately 125 pounds of gold. This was not a small structure. Approximately 125 pounds. And this was made out of one talent of gold. So this is not a light structure. It is not a... You know, a little small thing that you see in the Jewish houses. This, this thing stood and made some light. And this was not a very, you know, it wasn't a small, thing, small item. Uh, 
and it talks about you know all these little knobs and you can read through it and see and I kind of drew pictures it ends up with like four four to six knobs on each each little post of it and and uh, it gives out light seven does anybody remember what seven stands for Grace. No? no completion or perfection so the light that comes from the menorah is the perfect light so it represents Jesus on the uh, Jesus as the perfect light okay and it talks about the seven seven lights or the seven spirits of God which is given in Isaiah 7 or excuse me 11 it talks about the seven spirits of God again the whole idea of the perfect perfectionness of God is represented in seven and grace I believe grace was four but I have to look, I have to look it up yeah I was never real big on certain of them. I, I know that God is one and, uh, the, you know, God is three because of the Trinity and man is six. And there's certain ones that stand out uh, more than others. Um, 40 is perfect government, you know, the perfect government because God uses it for 40 to represent governmental numbers. All right. Any comments on the on the lamp? I mean, this is, when you think about 100 pound, 125 pounds of gold to build this thing, you're talking about something that is big. They had to cut it all out of one. All out of one, and this is seems to be that he pounded this one. He didn't seem to mold. It doesn't indicate that he molded this one. This was this was just made out of. He made a 25 pound lump of gold and formed it. Uh, so. How that happened, I don't know, but it did. And and if you read, if you, they had special, yeah. Yeah, the the two guys that were head, heading up this thing were given special gifts on being yeah. able to do this stuff and do it right. Uh, and if you read the Maccabees in there, that's a story about how they didn't have enough oil to keep the menorah running, and it kept running for eight eight days, and. If you read it carefully, it talks about the menorah shining so bright that all over Jerusalem they could see the light of this menorah burning. And, days, and I don't know how that happens because it was supposed to be inside, so somehow there was light that they could see. Days. Yeah, they had enough oil to, to keep the menorah lit for one day, and it was lit for eight days. And, this is, and it got to be known as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. Which, in the, if you read the if you read the Gospels carefully, Jesus celebrated the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. So, it's in the Scriptures. All right. Any comments? Verse twenty-five. And he made the incense altar of shittim wood. The length thereof was a cubic, and the breadth of it a cubic. And it was four square, and the two cubics was its height thereof. The horns were the same. And he overlaid it with pure gold, both the top of it and the sides around about it and the horns of it. And he made it unto it a crown of gold around about. And he made two rings of gold for under the crown thereby and two corners upon the two sides thereof to be the places for the staves and to bear... <coughs> Lost my place. And to bear it withal. And he made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. Okay, the table of incense. 
Remember where the table of incense is where they're going to burn the special oil that God gave them for, for burning in there. And what was said about this oil? Does anybody remember the, something about this recipe yeah, for this my, oil? My uh, son just did his house with, with it, with oil around his house. Uh, I forget what he, he called it. But anyway, he uh, anointed his house mm -hmm. with oil. Okay. And, and I said, virgin oil, virgin and olive oil, just olive oil. Okay, now remember this, we went, this was probably about a month and a half ago. The recipe for the incense oil and the anointing oil had a statement on it that this was to be used for nothing else other than the worship. You couldn't make any perfume that was like it. Okay, uh, and if anybody did, they were to be accursed. No, it was water. No, it had oil in it. had oil and a number of herbs. Yeah, no flower. Not didn't have flour in the anointing oils. Basically, if you remember, it had cinnamon and and spikenard and and uh, frankincense, and it was certain percentages and equal percentage of these each one. And God said very clearly, it is not to be duplicated, and it was not to be put, especially the incense oil was not to touch the flesh of people, okay? And why was, why did, does anybody remember why it was not to touch the flesh? Flesh is, is corrupt. Okay, first off, what does the oil represent? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into us, but it can only come into us after what happens. Dead. Huh? dead after we're saved, after we're saved oh, which means that our flesh has been crucified in the spiritual realm our flesh is dead and the Holy Spirit fills us as a brand new creation that's alive in the spirit world so this is a picture of the whole idea of the Holy Spirit does not deal with man's flesh because our flesh is to be crucified in the spiritual realm we are crucified and if you remember, we've, have we covered that yet in the who we are in Christ, that we are dead at the moment of salvation? I don't remember. Okay. But that is one of the truths is when we get saved, our flesh is crucified. God declares us as perfect. He has crucified our flesh. Now, in reality, we are being sanctified. But as far as the Holy Spirit is dwelling in eternity, so therefore, he can deal with us knowing what we will be because he knows the future. All right? And this is, it's hard for us to comprehend. God understands. When God talks about the future, as far as he's concerned, it is not future. All right? It would be kind of like over, if we built on this table some kind of timeline of history and we put little models all over it and we looked down on it and saying, I know this is going to happen because, in our case, because it already has, but that is what God is doing with all of eternity, or all of, all of time. He stands above time. He is outside of time, above time. He is, and we've said this before, he is present with Adam and Eve now. He is at the millennial kingdom now, and he is with us now. We can't comprehend that, but he has no problem because he is above and outside of time. So he looks down and says, 
okay, I'm here, I'm here, and I'm here because I'm everywhere. So it is very important for us to, we won't understand that we can't, we can maybe get some, some small concept of it, but we can't understand how he can be everywhere and at all times. Because it has been said in philosophy, the only way that you know that nothing, that something does or does not exist is to be everywhere at this and every time at the same time. Because otherwise, wherever you're not, it could be. And that includes future or past. So philosophically, we talk about the only way you know something for 100% absolute sure is if you could be everywhere and at all times. And God is everywhere in it and, and every place and every time at the same time so that he can say, yes, something is or, yet, or no, something isn't. Because he is everywhere. There's nothing that is hidden from him. And I know that's very hard to comprehend. I, I mean, I begin to start thinking about it, then I start thinking about it, and I go, I just, I can't, I can't think about it. it. It's one of those things that hurts the mind to think about. But yet we know that it's true. It's just like trying to deal with the Trinity. God is one, but he is three. And we can't comprehend that. And, and, I, and every time I teach the Trinity, I will always preface it with, I will give you the facts from the Bible that he is a trinity, that he is a trinity. There are three of them and they are one. Will you understand it any better after I give you all these verses? I doubt it because I've been studying it for 42 years and I still don't fully comprehend it. I just have to accept by faith that it is. And it's not that he is three different modes he, that he reveals himself. No, he is three distinct individuals that are one and we cannot comprehend it it makes no sense it's one of those it's one of those truths that tell us that this book is beyond man's kind because there is no way man could come up with that concept it just there is no way the idea that God is omnipresent with all time and all place is something we can't comprehend we, we talk to different people from different religions and different gods and every time you talk to them, basically their God is a man that is just blown up. Okay? Uh, you talk to a Muslim about Allah. Allah is the creator of everything, but he is an angry person who disciplines in anger and is never happy. He is just like a very mean person that has been given great power with no love at all in, in, in Allah's case. Uh, you get into Krishna, you know, the war god. Very funny looking god, but a very angry, very human, blown into, a, you know, blown, blown up. You get into the Roman gods or the, or the Norse gods, and they came to earth fully, fully powered up and, you know, and dealt with man, but they were just, you know, irrational men in their stories, or women in some cases. Uh, and these are the type of gods that are created by man. They're just, they take man's qualities and expound upon them and make them supernatural. But yet they're still basically people. And we look at the God that we worship and say, and he says, no, I'm not. You know, I am above all of this. I am everywhere at all times, all places. I am all-knowing. And you look at any of the other gods, none of them seem to be all-knowing. 
no matter which one you get into, they don't seem to know everything. You know, especially when you get into the Norse and the Romans and, and Krishna, you know, those guys can be tricked. You read their stories and they're always being tricked in how to live, live. And so we want to be careful because we want to make sure that our God is not too small. You remember two and a half years ago when I first started, my, my first 13 or so sermons were on the attributes of God, and I, and I prefaced it with, no matter what you think, you're probably thinking too small about God. No matter how strong you think of God, you have to multiply it. No matter how you think of his omnipresence, you have to multiply it. You know, no matter how you think of his omniscience, you have to multiply it because we're always thinking too small about our God. And I can guarantee I do it. I think too small of God quite often. You know, how powerful is God? He can handle anything. You know, how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I just can't hand this to God because it's too small a problem? Now, I've heard people tell me that more than once. And I, my question lately has been, okay, what problem is too big for God? What problem is not small to God? No matter, you know, I could think it's the biggest problem in the world, and God's going to look at you and say, that all you care about? I made it all. I made it all. I know how to fix all of it. And it says, that's all you're worried about? No matter how big our problem might be or we might think it is, which is usually the case, we think that it's a big problem. But even if it really was a big problem from a human standpoint, God's going to look down at it and say, is that all you're worried about? Yeah. We've got to remember God is bigger than anything that we can possibly forget think of. He is more forgiving than we can possibly comprehend. He is more loving than we can possibly comprehend. He is more perfect than we can possibly comprehend. He is more just than we can possibly comprehend. When God places a judgment upon somebody, it will be a just decision. When people stand before him at the white throne judgment for having rejected Jesus Christ, it will be a just decision when he points out to them the times that they rejected him. Whatever that means, it will be a just decision. When people say, what about the, what about the native in the middle of you know, South America? It's never God. We have his word in our conscience. We have, we have the word from Adam and Eve and Noah and and his family, the word is already out there. The idea of the Messiah is out there. The idea that we can only be forgiven by the sacrifice of God exists in every civilization. Okay, they may not know the name of Jesus for the completion of it, but they know that they had to offer a sacrifice in hope for the ultimate sacrifice. And this is where the sacrificial system came from. Adam and Eve sinned. God provided them skins to cover them with. That meant that he had to kill animals to give them the skins. And the reason that he killed the animal was to show them that a sacrifice was needed for forgiveness. And it was a very and it started in there, and we see it in Ad, you know, see it in Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring the sacrifice. Abel brings it from the flock, which is the blood sacrifice. Cain brings it from the fruit of his own works the sweat of his own brow, saying, God, here's my works, accept them. God rejects them. 
Why? Because it had already been shown that shedding of blood was needed for the remission of sin. And we see the sacrificial system all through the scriptures. We see it all through the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Babylonian Empire. All through the Indians had sacrifices. The blood sacrifice has always been part of seeking forgiveness because God gave it to people from the very beginning. So whatever light they have, they will have to be obedient to. And the idea is that they will have to say, God, I need you. I cannot do this myself. And ultimately, that's the bottom line of salvation. God, I need your sacrifice. I cannot do this. I'm going to do it your way. And we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because he is the sacrifice. We put our hands upon his head, as it was described in, in Leviticus, where they put their hands on the hand of, head of the animal, and they, basically they would say a prayer and confess their sins on that animal, and that animal was sent to death, carrying their sins, representing Jesus, taking our sins upon himself, and taking them to the cross. So God is so much more than anything we can think of and contemplate. And this is what, no matter who I talk to, God is bigger than whatever they conceive him as. Whether it's a brand new Christian that barely knows God, he's definitely much bigger than anything they conceive of. If you've been walking with God for 80 years, God is still bigger than anything that you can conceive of as well. Because he is more. He's infinitely more than anything we can comprehend or understand. All right. Wow. We're done. We had one more verse, but it fits into... Let's, let's read this last verse, 29. And he made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense and sweet spices according to the work of the apothecary, which means that he ground them up and, 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 and just you know, fixed them up into small, small uh, pieces. And uh, the doc, then there were two oils, the, the incense and the anointing oil. All right, any comments before we pray? A lot of work. What? A lot of work, a lot of repetition on what we've already covered, you know, a couple months ago. So that's why we're, you know, going through this so fast, because we could go back and re-say re everything we said, but I mean, I don't want to spend another two months on reiterating what we've, what we've already covered. All right. So apocathery is a ground-up what? Apocathery, apocathery oh, is... Ground up stuff. Is it like a pharmacist? It's a pharm we, we, there used to be a name for pharmacists and druggists. They would take... Oh, and they still call it in England, apothecary. Yeah, they would take the items into, a, into a, a mortar and pestle, and then they would crush them, crush them up, oh, and then add fluids to it. If it was to be a suspension, suspension item, it was put into fluid and, and made into a suspension suspension or it was poured into pills if it was just a pill so basically crushed the ingredients lord we thank you for this day we thank you for the opportunity to look at just again the the beauty of of you being seen within the tabernacle pieces as they're starting to put them together and lord as we get to the end of this chapter where your glory fills the tabernacle and and people are just amazed at it. And we just want to just praise you and, 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 and love you for all that you've done with us and ask you to go with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.